Good morning. My name is Kelly Anderson, and I'm going to try to do this without constantly crying. <laughs> um, I actually listened to Led Zeppelin on the way here just to get this out of my system, but Led is still with me. Um, I've been coming to Windsor Road for about 31 years. Time really does fly. My dad laid floor covering for a living. He was a hard worker. <laughs> Spent a lot of time on his hands and knees. And I grew up with the smell of vinyl and carpet glue and hearing words like tack strip and knee kicker. <laughs> Does anybody else know what a knee kicker is? <laughs> Good. <laughs> you can Google it later. <laughs> I know what a subfloor is and how important it is. It's the rather plain foundation that you can find under tile, linoleum, carpet. You all have subflooring in your homes. Maybe you've never seen it. You have to have a good subfloor to make sure the next layer goes down right. If it's warped or if it gets wet, it won't work. Anything put over it won't look right and it won't last. As a matter of fact, under this new carpet, if you've noticed, where I'm standing this morning, there is 20-year-old subflooring. It's really just plain old plywood, but its importance is critical to whatever is placed upon it. It might seem weird, but I came in here this Monday when they said the carpet was torn up. I came just to look at the subfloor. <laughs> On this stage and, and on these stairs, it means something to me. In this particular room, this subfloor up here is kind of sacred. And I would say there's probably only a handful of people here at Windsor Road who know why. But I'll tell you more about that later. 20 years is a long time. Our whole world was different then, wasn't it? This space here was built 20 years ago. Before that, it was just part of a grassy field and a vision. Back then, we worshipped over there in what is now known as the garage. All that out there was grass, maybe parking lot. When we started coming to Windsor Road 30 years ago, an elderly man named Joe Foster stood by the back door, counting heads, and belting out hymns along with the organ and the one song leader up front with the hymnal in his hand. I'll never forget Joe's voice ringing out in that small space that only sat about 200 people. Is that right? About 200? And you, you know that amazing children's wing to the left of the doors here? 20 years ago, children's ministry was a handful of simple little rooms downstairs. Did you guys even know there was a downstairs? There's a downstairs. The, the youth ministry had one small room, crammed kids into there. And off that hallway, there was a little room, not much bigger than a closet. And in that room, there was actually a kneeler for private prayer and filing cabinets 
where the growing worship ministry kept songs, sheet music, books with drama scripts in them. It, it, was, it was a different time in our church. The world and our community were changing, and our church here was on the brink of major change as well. Our older folks, our church's founders, were dreaming dreams. And our young leaders were pursuing God's vision for this space. Yes, the whole church was changing. The Lord had planted in our hearts his vision and his plan for this place. And when this room was built, there was a sense that we were all waiting for something, for someone. And we knew God was here with us. We were all just waiting and working for you, for all of you. For the people worked with all their hearts. That's in Nehemiah 4. It's my favorite sentence in the whole chapter. Walls like the one in Nehemiah are built to both keep people in and keep people out. They establish territory. They're not bad things or good things, although they can be used for either purpose. But churches? Churches aren't walls. They are living, breathing invitations to come in, to come closer to learn more, to love better, to be Jesus in the world. So let's get back to this subfloor. <laughs> why is this subfloor sacred? It's just kind of weird. I'm sure some of you are sitting here thinking, why am I listening to this woman talk about subflooring on a construction site? Well, usually when you build something new, you don't think about the day that it will be old. You don't think about the day when it will be torn apart or rebuilt. And this room was such a huge thing, such a big change when it was new. It was symbolic of our hopes for the future as a church family. Our prayer that the Lord would grow us, not just in numbers, but in impact on hearts and lives and families and souls. This year... Those of us who were here 20 years ago are getting to see some of those things torn apart, rebuilt, recreated in this room. One of those things for me was the tearing up of the carpet on this platform and these stairs because I and a few others knew something about this plywood subfloor. We knew that it held a secret and why it might be sacred. One evening 20 years ago, this floor was just bare wood, kind of ugly, as the functional parts of a construction site can be. The carpet had not been laid yet, and those of us on the worship team then met here one night. We were a small but mighty group. We stood in this room, and we gathered around, and we prayed. There weren't chairs. There wasn't carpet. There wasn't much. <laughs> it 
We prayed for and over this space, this place of worship and this house of God. We didn't even know most of your names. We didn't know where you were or who you were or what you were doing or if you were even born yet. But we prayed for every single one of you, for all of you, for all of us, for the ones who were here then that very first Sunday with the smell of new carpet and glue in the air. And those of you who came today for the very first time with the smell of new carpet and glue in the air, we prayed We wanted you here so badly. We prepared this space for you to be here so we could introduce you to the God we love. For the people worked with all their hearts. And after we prayed, we grabbed our Sharpies. And we knelt and bent and sat on this plywood subfloor and we wrote we wrote prayers and lyrics and bible verses lots of verses every time randy stood on on this platform for the last 20 years every worship leader every guitar player they've been standing on those words every wedding Every baptism, every faith story stood on those words that we wrote. For each word we wrote, we kept on praying. We didn't just carpet a floor or paint a ceiling or buy a new chair. We didn't build a wall. We built a living, breathing invitation. And you came. Let me pray for us. Father, this house is full of you. And we are so grateful that you have made it full of us, that you are dwelling with us here. Let us as a church and each one of us as individuals be willing to be constructed and deconstructed and rebuilt to suit your purposes only. Build us into more than we can ever dream or imagine. We lift our heads, we lift our hearts to you to do the work that you desire. We love you. It's in your name that we pray today. Amen. I can't think of a better way to introduce our text today than to have heard Kelly's moving faith story. Kelly, thank you so very, very much. Because our passage of scripture today is about people who worked and served the Lord so that others would come and belong to God's community. It's a passage about regathering and rebuilding, and it's a passage about who the participants were, and it's about God's people in their finest hour. If you have your Bibles, would you please meet me in Nehemiah 
chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3. Now this morning, just in light of what we've heard, I want to read the entire chapter. Um, And here's what I want to do. I have a request. I need your help. Um, Look at Nehemiah chapter 3. And each of you pick out a verse. Okay? Just go ahead and pick out a verse in Nehemiah chapter 3. Pick a verse, any verse. All right? If you found the verse now, pick out a name. Pick out a name. Okay? Now, when I'm going to read the entire chapter, when I come to that verse that you've picked out, and when I read that name that you've picked out, just stand up until I get to the next verse. And then you sit down. Okay? And what's going to happen here as I read is people are going to be standing up and sitting down and standing up and sitting down and standing up and sitting down. Okay? And then I'll tell you why I did that. All right? All right? Get it? Good. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hanano. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasanah built the sheep excuse me, the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshalam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshabazel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Joyada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodeah, repaired the gate of Yashana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Meranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uzziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaf, Repaired opposite his house, and next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabneah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. 
They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkijah, the son of Rehab, ruler of the district of Beth Haharam, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah the son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half-district of Kailah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kailah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory of the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men surrounding the area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emir, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zaloth repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. <sighs> This is the word of the Lord. Amen. <laughs> what did we just read? What is this? <laughs> it's a whole bunch of people. A whole bunch of people. This is a roster of God's people 
who helped rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Like the Sharpies and the names. Well, what we're reading here is an organized list of laborers. So Nehemiah has sectioned off the wall into approximately 40 segments. And each segment averaged about the length of a football field. Uh, Although one section, verse 13, is 1,000 cubits. That's 1,500 feet in length. Now, the direction of the list moves counterclockwise around the city. And there were several major gates mentioned, the Sheep Gate, Fish Gate, the Yeshanah Gate, that's the old city gate, the Valley Gate, the Dung Gate, the Fountain Gate, the Water Gate, the Horse Gate, the Mustard Gate, and then back up to the Sheep Gate. It's counterclockwise. And according to an Old Testament scholar, Edwin Yamauchi, Uh, The wall was just under two linear miles. And, And who were these workers? Well, they were neither journeymen nor master carpenters. They weren't bricklayers or iron workers or other craftsmen in the construction trades. They were priests, rulers... Uh, Common people, gatekeepers, guards, farmers, goldsmiths, perfumers, merchants, temple servants, women, men, fathers and their sons, fathers and their daughters, families, families. They were people from every walk of life. And they did not have the luxury of having the expertise they would have liked to have had, yet they were willing Motivated and interested. And you'll notice in the scripture that some of the work was done. We'll take a look at verses 23 and 28 and 29. It says, opposite their house. Opposite their house. Do you see that? In other words, they have a vested interest in doing it well. Because they're going to be looking at it. And it's going to be protecting them. See? So this is a list uh, which is history. I mean, the detail on what we just read is not something of fiction. Uh, This is a record of history. And it would have been kept in the temple archives, a sort of library uh, in the temple uh, by Eliashib the high priest. So it's specifically dated to the time when Eliashib was high priest there in uh, Israel's life story. And every name is the story of someone's life. Every name is a faith story of someone who mattered to God. Someone whose life was being rebuilt from the broken places. So someone in a specific life situation, going through a specific season of rebuilding, and it happened one section of the wall at a time. And some of these names are folks who had been living in Babylon, but have returned, you know. Let's return to the homeland. Let's return to a place we've never seen. And let's see what God will make of us. 
And some have been in the homeland and their lives have been stagnant and stuck. But by God's mercy, a fresh breeze has blown into town. I don't know who this Nehemiah guy is, but I mean, there's just something about his faith that's refreshing and contagious. He seems like the real deal. Let's follow him. But what I need you to particularly see in chapter 3 is that these names represent the vast number of nameless workers. See, we just considered the proper names There were so many nameless servants, sons, daughters, inhabitants, priests, uh, tekoites, who, who, by the way, did more than their fair share. They show up in verse 5, but also in verse 26. And temple servants and merchants, wow! Oh, and did you notice this? Whose name is not on the list? Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now, there's another Nehemiah, and you'll see him in verse 16, but that's, that's another Nehemiah. Wow. I mean, what a, I, I want to be like Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. He doesn't care who gets the credit as long as God gets the glory. That's leadership. And what we're reading in this chapter is the story of how God gets his work done. And God gets his work done through people. Through people. God starts his work through people. God continues his work through people. And God will finish his work through people. And as we learned in chapter 1... God always starts with a burdened heart. Is there room in your heart for a burden from God? You've been praying that here in the last month? What's God doing to your heart? Is he creating space? Has he enlarged your heart so that a burden can rest, a burden that can lead to action, love, at work. And here's the beauty of Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah's burden became their burden. See, these verses testify to the contagious, multiplying power of a single, bur- a single person's burdened heart. The solitary burden of Nehemiah in chapter 1 has become a shared burden a community burden by the Lord's people in chapter 3. Shared identity has led to shared ownership of a shared burden, which has brought a shared ministry. (laughs) This this name-packed passage of Scripture is really Israel uh, in her finest hour. (laughs) And so here's the big idea. Here's here's the point of chapter 3. Here it is. God's work through God's people takes all of God's people. Say that with me. God's work through God's people takes all of God's people. And isn't that the truth? 
Nehemiah's spiritual community and the life of the city of Jerusalem cannot be built by the priests alone or the clergy alone. In this chapter, the clergy are working right alongside everybody else. Everybody's participating. Everybody's doing the work. Everybody has a hand in rebuilding the wall. Rebuilding the people of God takes all the people of God. Everyone needs to play their part in it. And, and the scripture just tells us the raw truth. Not everybody did. Right? Verse 5. This is the boo-hiss portion of the sermon. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Ooh. (laughs) Boo-hiss, yeah. (laughs) Who does Nehemiah think he is to tell us what to do? I don't have to follow him. This work is beneath me. I'm a noble. I'm noble. I'm not, I'm not using a, a knee kicker, getting on my knees. Not going to happen. See, they don't want change. They don't want change. See, because they like the current caste system. They benefit from the status quo. They like it that others are broken. The brokenness of others elevates them. How twisted is that? You know, Nehemiah, what are you doing to my city? It's not your city. Not your city. It's God's city. And Nehemiah is God's servant to do God's work, but he can't do it by himself. It takes all of God's people to do all of God's work. And, and, and it takes all of God's people doing all of God's work, sharing the burden side by side. Do you see that? Did you notice that in verses 4 and 5 and 7 and 8 through 10 and 12? Do you notice the phrase next to him, next to him, next to them? Huh? So this chapter is about relationships. So these folks are appearing at the same time, working on the same project, at the same pace, with the same goal. There, there's a solidarity that the project is producing. So the wall is not the end. The wall is a means to an end. The end is a unified community of people from every walk of life to the glory of God. That's the the end. huh? People from every part of Israel's culture come together for something larger than themselves. And so when I read about Nehemiah chapter 3, I think of us. I think of our congregation. God's been so good to our church family in this season. And he continues to bring men and women and children from every tongue and tribe and nation to our church community. And more and more, I just taste heaven in our gathering. And and let me be sure to clarify something. It is possible to be diverse yet not unified. It's possible for a congregation to be diverse and not unified. So so the goal is not diversity with competing polarized factions. The goal is a unified, multinational, multi-ethnic people of God who live and work and serve together without rivalry or envy, but in the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us an otherworldly peace. Amen. Amen. 
And, and, and here is where it gets challenging. There's nothing in the text that indicates that these folks got to choose who they were going to work next to. <laughs> Sit in that for a minute. They just found themselves thrown together. See, next to him, next to her, next to them. So there's proximity. And proximity leads to friction. Who took my hammer? But what, what are you doing? You, you know, I mean, there's just... And so, so we want community, but community brings us close together. But when we get close together, we kind of sometimes butt heads, right? Is, am I the only one here? It happens. It happens. And so, so we need patience, right? And this, this, this really is the church of the Old Testament, which is a foretaste of the church of the New Testament. And since the book of Acts, people who came to Christ found themselves thrown together with others they likely would not have chosen. <laughs> Palestinian and Hellenistic Jews, Jews and Gentiles, educated and uneducated, slave and free, rich and poor, military and civilian, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, former prostitutes and former Pharisees. Well, we're all here. We're all here. We're a spiritual community of diverse, sin-polluted individuals from all sorts of life stories who constitute really an impossible kingdom. An impossible kingdom under the rule of Jesus. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's planted us into his kingdom. And to this impossible kingdom, impossible by worldly standards is what I mean. This impossible kingdom, we have been given by Jesus an impossible command. Love one another. Love one another. If you want to witness to the reality of King Jesus in this world, if you want to give visible evidence to the invisible God, then love one another. For love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous, conceited, or proud. It is not rude. It is not irritable. It is not self-seeking. It always hopes, always protects, always trusts, always perseveres. Love never fails. And you say, this is impossible. And you're exactly right. You're exactly right. But, but Jesus said what is impossible for man is possible with God. So having given us this impossible kingdom, an impossible command, Jesus sends us on an impossible mission. Make disciples. Preach the gospel in all the world. The entire God-rejecting, Christ-hating world. And then plant impossible communities among every people where diverse, sin-polluted individuals from all sorts of life stories would live out Jesus' impossible command to love one another. Impossible love in an impossible community on an impossible mission. This plan is doomed to fail. There's no way this works unless God appears to make the humanly impossible possible. And yet here we are. 2,000 years later, 
The impossible mission has produced impossible communities, embassies, embassies of heaven, carrying out this impossible command on a global scale. Uh, Nehemiah 3 is a foretaste of this. I'm telling you. This entire, listen, listen to me. Think. This entire chapter's existence assumes that the wall actually got built. Right? So, I mean, why else would it be here except that the wall was built? So, so chapter 3 is a spoiler alert. Say, well, why would we need a spoiler alert so early in the book? Well, have you read the rest of the book? Have you read chapters 4 and 5 and 6? The opposition is so intense. The pressure is so severe. The enemies are so determined. I tell you, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen? Amen. So no matter how intense your struggle is, no matter how broken you feel your world is, God has put chapter 3 here. And God has given you a chapter 3 to assure you that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. I tell you, that's true. Trust him. He will carry you through. He is faithful to the end. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that whether we are awake or or asleep, we might be with him. We're going to win because Jesus has already won. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. So then, in view of this, in view of this, if, if, if it's true that God's work through God's people takes all of God's people, here's the take-home for today. Take your place on the wall. Take your place on the wall. The Apostle Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Do you hear what Peter is saying? He's saying that that each one of us is an agent of God's grace according to just the different gifts and abilities and temperament that God has given us. Some of of you are reading this right now and, and, and you're wondering, where do I fit in? Where do I fit in? God's commission for you might be to help prepare a broken home, help repair a broken business, Help repair a broken neighborhood, a broken school, a broken relationship. Is there some area of life where God's will is not being done? Well, do you see that area? Maybe God has let you see that area because that's where he wants you to go. See, No one, I say, no one, I say it again, no one listed here is in the construction trade. The the skilled labor needed just wasn't there. And yet great things were accomplished anyway. Because God put the team together. And, and God did not commission you to do all of the work all by yourself. And nobody was doing flex time on the wall. 
okay? They had to be together. They had to be together. They had to, they had to labor together and serve together. And the reason why is because their world was just too dangerous. I mean, all by themselves, they, the sand ballot would have picked them off. That's what he tries to do to Nehemiah. He tries to separate Nehemiah from the group. Nehemiah's not going to be separated from the group. And don't you let yourself be separated from God's people. Amen. So, so God's people here, they labored. And they looked out for one another. And they loved one another. And they served one another. And they encouraged one another. And yeah, there was a relapse. We'll talk about that in later weeks. But for now, for now, let's just enjoy the moment of peace and unity and harmony. Because you see, being part of what God wants us to accomplish means moving from a crowd of individuality to a community of interdependence. From individuality to interdependence. And, and, and here's the beauty of it. Knowing that God will see you through to the end and knowing that you don't have to be by yourself can help you serve even in the most unappealing places. Hey, let's face it. Where would you rather work on this wall? Near the king's garden or the dung gate? Huh? Yeah. What do you think your clothes are going to smell like at the end of the day? Yeah. Woo. I heard that. But some unpleasant tasks need to be done. And uh, it's better when we do those together. And, and people showed up, even in those places, because every part of the wall needed attention. And Nehemiah showed up too. His beard would have been clogged with grit and his eyes red with dust and sweat streaks would have poured down his face too. We learn in Nehemiah 4.21, we labored at the work from the break of dawn until the stars came out. Not everybody's expected to do everything. But everybody needs to do something. And isn't that true for us today? You know, last week, uh, Michelle gave us a really important card. And uh, it was an outreach card. Just ways that you can do outreach together. You and your household. Let's just put it at that level. Giving out Bible-based bookmarks to cashiers when you shop. Pick up trash at parks together. Grocery shop at Salt and Light once a month and pray for the ministry as you shop. Give a ride to someone walking in bad weather. Do prayer walks around schools and neighborhoods and hospitals and other spaces that your family has a burden for. See, see greatness in the kingdom is marked by service, not mere consumption. And healthy spiritual community happens when each person in the congregation realizes who they are, whose they are, and how God has uniquely equipped him or her for service. And you may say, well, how can I know my gifts? How can I know my gifts? Well, just reading Nehemiah, first of all, pray. There's plenty to do after we pray. There's nothing to do before we pray. God, where do you want me? God, give me a burden. Pray that, and then keep your eyes open because God's going to answer that prayer. You pray that sincerely. 
he'll answer it. God, make me aware of the burdens that you place and the opportunities that you set before me. And then just take the risk. Step out. You've got life experiences. You've got educational experiences. You've got vocational experiences. And you have painful experiences. And those experiences all shape your ability to serve. We're living stones being built into the city of God. And there are no insignificant people. There aren't. There are certain people whom you can speak to that no one else can. You've got certain hands that you can hold because of your past experiences. And you've got certain hearts that you can reach. And there are certain people to whom you can be prophet, priest, and king. And there are certain ways that you can build up the people of God. And you would not be here unless God wanted you to use your gift for his glory and the, and the good of others. Earlier this morning, got a phone call from Sharon Van Grinsman, our dear sister here at church. And her brother, John Van Grinsman, he has been uh, connecting with us online uh, since we've been online here. Uh, John's fought cancer for over 20 years, almost 25. But this morning, he is really worshiping. At 6.50 in the morning, he stepped into the arms of Jesus. Hallelujah. Those of you who are on Facebook will remember his comments each Lord's Day morning. Well, I'm telling you, he's given comments now. And he's praising the Lord Jesus. And um, it's meaningful because here after all that John and Sharon have given to this church family, in these past several months, it's the church family that's served and ministered to him. You say, how? Well, through this technology, those of you who are behind the cameras, you serve John by keeping him connected to us in this space. And last week, uh, from our staff, Rachel and Amber paid a house visit to the Van Grinsvens, and they had a worship service. Oh, my goodness. Rachel brought her guitar, and they sang and praised and prayed God, praised, praised God. And now, John is free man. He's with Jesus. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen. Amen. It takes all of God's people to do all of God's work. And I, I want you to know that. I want you to know that. 